Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, our topic is an equine herpes virus update. Equine herpes virus is a scary disease for many horse owners. Uh, long known as rhino in its respiratory form, the disease was that snotty nose all young horses seem to get. Uh, and of course, EHV caused abortion to mares. And then about 14 years ago, an outbreak involving a deadly neurologic form made the news. Horses would spike a fever, lose mobility, uh, often having to be euthanized. Already this year, we've had reported outbreaks of EHV in Louisiana, Kentucky, California, Michigan, Texas, Nevada, and in Canada. And Dr. Reed, who's with us, can add any if I missed any. But the uh, impact of this disease is both economic and emotional. So tonight, we're joined by our EHV expert, Dr. Stephen Reed, who's an intern medicine, internal medicine specialist at Rood and Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. He's also a professor and a researcher. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Thanks, Michelle. Glad to be here. Hopefully, uh, uh, we can uh, you know, put some uh, information together that will be useful to your uh, audience. Uh, you started off with something that got me uh, keyed in, and that was your statement about 14 years ago, because if you were referring to what happened at the uh, University of Finley with their outbreak, and uh, I, I happen to be a big part of managing that, and it's uh, it's been a disease that I've had a keen interest in ever since then. Yeah, yeah, and so did I get that right, all those locations that, that it's happened this year? This year, that's right. There's yeah. probably a few more. It seems... You know, part of the, I think the uh, keyed in uh, reason is that people are so much more aware of this particular virus and so uh, tuned in to wondering about it and noticing it. And because in several states it's become a reportable disease, uh, I'd say almost all now, but it's not, you know, if not all, a majority of them. And uh, so everybody's tuned in. And you're right, the places that you mentioned already. Uh, where they, they've caused some really significant problems, both for the horses, for the trainers and owners, and there was some big economical consequences along with it. Yeah. So you mentioned already that you've had an interest in, in this disease. Can you tell us about your experience with infectious disease and your particular interest in EHV? Yeah, well, as an internist, uh, that means that you're going to get all of those things that surgery can't fix. And so many of those problems are infectious disease problems. Now, my uh, a lot of my research has been on neurologic problems over the years uh, and a little bit with developmental things like or, uh, cervical stenosis. But two really big equine infectious neurologic diseases that I've been interested in are EPM, not going to talk about that tonight, and EHM, so the equine herpes virus myeloencephalopathy, and um, that that particular one, uh, this virus, uh, you know, when what we've noticed about it is uh, not only that it seems to be so prevalent, and it's it's been around a long time. If you look back, we, we've got you know uh, outbreaks of the herpes myeloencephalopathy going well back over a hundred years, but in the last 14 to 15 years, it seems like we've seen significantly more problems with it. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that in some of the questions tonight, I'm sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know as a horse owner, it used to be really just like, oh, you know, the young horses are going to get rhino or, you know, if you owned a broodmare, you were concerned about it um, and having your mare abort. But um, then it got really scary after some of these big outbreaks. So I'm going to go ahead and give everyone a brief overview of our event format for those who haven't been with us before. Um, we will be starting with questions everyone submitted during registration. Uh, we had um, over 200 people register, so there's lots of questions that we sorted through to get to tonight. We won't get to all of them, but we will try to cover um, everyone's biggest questions. Um, you, If you're listening live and you're at your computer, you can submit questions as we're live. Feel free to follow up. Um, any of Dr. Reed's answers, ask for clarification or ask uh, your own questions. We especially would like to hear from any event organizers out there. If you are someone who puts on horse shows and wants to know about keeping horses safe or protocols during horse shows uh, and outbreaks, uh, go ahead and chime in. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible, so let's go ahead and get started. And Dr. Reed, we've touched briefly on what EHV is, but can you give us um, the basic summary? What What is this disease? I think you, you gave a really nice start at the beginning because uh, the clinical signs associated with equine herpes virus, there are, there are many uh, herpes viruses, but the ones that we mostly worry about are the EHV1 and the EHV4. And uh, the EHV4 predominantly causes just respiratory disease. The, the EHV1, so that particular viral strain, causes fever and uh, usually followed by respiratory disease. And that may be all you see. Unfortunately, the other big issues that you mentioned earlier, abortion, and that's the number one reason in broodmares that we vaccinate against this disease. And then uh, the, the third and the one that we're predominantly dealing with, uh, you know, an outbreak form are the equine uh, herpes myeloencephalopathy. Uh, although, again, we need to remember that the, this virus can cause abortion storms as well. So that, that's a pretty, uh, you know, brief, but maybe in uh, additional questions, we can uh, deal delve more into what the virus does and the clinical signs. Okay. Yeah, and our next question is from Nancy in Washington, and she wanted to know what are the clinical signs of EHV? And I would add to that, how is it different from other kind of common infectious diseases that we see like equine influenza? So I, I think that, you know, when it's spread in the respiratory form, it's going to look very similar to uh, equine influenza. You know, the one thing that's different about influenza is that it has a very short incubation period. It causes a very dramatic uh, cough that's uh, hacking. And so that's a virus that spreads very, very rapidly. This virus can spread fairly rapidly. And when it comes to the neurologic form, particularly uh, when we talk in a minute about the mutation in this virus, one of the things that that mutation seems to do is cause the virus to have the ability to replicate very fast. And so when it replicates fast, you get really high levels of viremia at the nose, as well as, um, you know, in the bloodstream and then causing uh, subsequent diseases. So in, in, in response to the clinical signs, I think the first thing you're going to see is a fever and a snotty nose, and then uh, that may be all you see. It, it may run its course right there. Um, if you get the neurologic form, what you're going to see is usually an 
ascending paralysis. And so that means it starts often with the pelvic limbs and it will, they'll be a little bit weak behind and then they'll get progressively weaker there. And uh, other things that you'll note is a loss of tail and anal tone and urine dribbling. So that, when you see those kind of neurologic signs, you start right away getting very, very worried that you could have equine herpes myeloencephalopathy. Uh, the other obvious thing is the potential for abortion storms. So Carol is in Michigan, and she is asking that question about the, the mutation. She said, please explain the wild strain versus the neurologic strain or the mutated strain. Uh, is the disease presentation specific to the strain? Uh, that those are really that that's a really good question. So the wild strain and the uh, neurologic or mutated strain, um, this particular virus has been around for centuries. And in fact, the way that, that uh, herpes viruses maintain themselves in the environment is by latent infections. Uh, what's something that's a little bit similar to that happens to people are. Uh, some of us are uh, individuals who are likely to get fever blisters. And if you were one of those unfortunate people, you might get this virus and it might stay in your body. And whenever you get stressed, that latent virus can start to manifest itself again. So so that is a key with the equine herpes virus. Once infected, they may very well remain infected for life and it'll be present in a latent form. Now, to get to the real question, what about the wild strain versus the neurologic strain? Well, the, the wild strain is probably the oldest form of the virus. It's been present for centuries. And as I said, it maintains itself as a persistent late infection, latent infection in equine populations. The mutated strain of the virus might also have been around for a lot longer than we know. But in this place, in this virus, there's a modification in its genetic code where there's a substitution of one amino acid for another. And what that substitution does is allow this virus to start replicating very rapidly. Because once the virus is in the bloodstream, or it starts at the nose, so it's spread by respiratory, then um, it will increase in numbers and it will finally cause damage and, and get into the uh, body uh, through the respiratory uh, epithelium up in, of the nose primarily. And then once it's in the body, it will be circulating in the blood inside cells. And once it's in there, it can cause damage to blood vessels. And so a lot of the neurologic signs that we see are due to stroke-like involvement. I don't know, maybe I went on too long. No, not at all. <laughs> um, we have a question from Anita in Nevada, and she wants to know how long after the disease is on a property, um, and you know it's been contaminated with the virus, how long is it before it's safe for the horse to be back on that property or in that area? Uh, again, the, because this is a virus that it lives inside of cells, and so viruses are not going to live very long in the environment. Uh, if they're out in the environment inside some sort of mucus and they're in a, a somewhat protected environment, it might be able to be present there for, uh, you know, uh, maybe a few days. But uh, so, so in reality, um, 
outside the body, the virus doesn't live very long. Now, if you had a horse that had this particular problem and you put another horse right directly into that stall, eating out of the same feed tubs, drinking out of the same water buckets, without anything in between, you might be able to get it to, to transmit fairly long. But generally, what we say is, if you've got a horse that has this particular problem and you segregate that horse from other horses, and then you keep an eye on all the horses in the environment, if you go 14 to 21 days beyond the last fever, you're probably pretty safe to put other horses in that environment. And, and, and in actuality, if you haven't had another onset of a problem within a week, you're probably not going to have, a, a, you know, too much of a, of a problem because usually when it starts, it'll spread fairly rapidly. So we have a follow-up question to that, and it's from Lisa in our live audience, and she said that she recently bought used leather halters from a local racetrack that had an outbreak of the virus. Is there any concern that the virus could be passed by the tack? Um, should she clean That's them a, anyway? I, I you know, uh, the, the virus, I mean, it's not probably nice to say, but it's somewhat wimpy. You know, in reality, if it's outside the body and not living in cells, it, it's not going to hang around very long. So uh, simple mechanical cleaning, soap and water is going to make a, a big difference. And then, uh, you know, for disinfectant, you know, something as as mild as bleach would probably take care of eliminating this. There are plenty of other, uh, you know, uh, agents that would be antiviral, uh, you know, that would be helpful for us as being able to, to clean and disinfect an area. But the reality is uh, it's not going to be hanging out on those leather halters for very long. So I probably, if they're in good shape, wouldn't be afraid to use them. We have another follow-up question, and this is from Kathleen in our live audience. And she says, uh, while EHV could remain latent, could it also increase, increase a horse's immunity to the disease? You know, that's the, 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 the immune response of the horse uh, to this virus should be really, really good. And so when you, once you get the horse exposed, it might be lying dormant, say, maybe in the trigeminal ganglion, which is a part of the nervous system, or inside a lymph node, uh, and just be sitting there. And as long as it's quiet, it's probably doing nothing to stimulate the immune system. Only when it's in sort of its active uh, phase where it's recrudesced from that latent form is it likely to start turning on the immune system in that horse. Um, and that's why even horses that, have, that are latently infected, are, it's important to vaccinate them on a regular basis. Uh, a in California submitted a question. She wants to know what steps should you take if you believe your horse has been exposed to EHV? Well, the number one thing is careful observation. And so, um, you know, keeping an eye for any onset of uh, either, either nasal discharge, respiratory signs, coughing, but most critically, start taking the horse's temperature. Temp them twice a day. Uh, and that's going to be the, your earliest key because with this particular virus, they'll get a fever and then that fever goes away and then they get a second few days later uh, febrile response. And at that point in time, 
you know, you might, uh, so you might miss the first one. So temping your horse twice a day for several days is going to be a really, really helpful and protective thing for you to do. And when should you call the vet? Well, I, I would say that calling the veterinarian, if you know that there's been an exposure, you might call them and just explain to your veterinarian what's happened, and they might uh, they, they might be able to initially deal with it over the telephone by just saying to you, keep a close eye on the horse, temp them twice a day. I wouldn't, uh, if they start, the, if the first sign you notice is um, that they've got a fever and now maybe they're a little bit neurologic, you need to have the vet there immediately. No doubt if you have a breeding farm and you've had an abortion, it's very, very critical to get your veterinarian out there. Okay. Justine in Oregon wants to know if a horse can be a carrier without the owner knowing it. Um, you know, it's, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to diagnose a carrier uh, because you know, many, if not most horses are infected with this virus early in life. It establishes this latency in the horse. And as long as they are not manifesting any of the clinical signs, you would have very little ability to know that uh, the horses, uh, you know, even have the virus. Um, and one of the things that, that Dr. George Allen did when he was uh, still living here was he harvested lymph nodes from horses that had died for other reasons just to get a feel for whether the virus was present. Now, he was specifically interested in whether the mutated strain of the virus was present in horses in Kentucky. And what he found was by just harvesting lymph nodes from, from animals that had died for colic or other reasons, that in fact, the virus was there a lot of the times, but they had no signs of respiratory disease or anything related to herpes. So uh, it's that's a really good question. And unfortunately, it's almost impossible to diagnose a carrier. Okay. Uh, we have a question from Leanne in North Carolina, and she wants to know if a horse might have really mild clinical signs that might, might not noticed right away. Absolutely, which is why, you know, uh, owners and indoor caretakers are probably the really, really most important people in helping uh, prevent a problem in your individual horses and if they're at a horse show in uh, all the horses around there. So those individuals who are with the animal on a daily basis know best how it's acting, whether it's alert and eating, and you know quickly when something happens. Uh, that is different. So your horse is, uh, you know, a little bit more obtundent or not itself. Uh, it's not eating well. And you, you may or may not catch a, a temperature, but it's the, it could easily be there and you and pass through and you not know it. Uh, Carolyn is in Georgia, and she wants to know uh, what treatment options are available for EHV, and is it different depending on the clinical signs? Yeah, I think that uh, that it is different. You know, uh, very at the beginning, you know, as far as treatment goes, I think that if it has, if it's just got a respiratory virus, it might run its course, and you don't need to do anything. If it doesn't have a really high temperature and it's not showing evidence of 
getting any secondary bacterial infections. You may just let it run its course. Um, the, the next thing is place the horse on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. So drugs like phenylbutazone, banamine, aspirin, those are probably going to be some of the uh, drugs that are going to be very useful in just dealing with the fever and helping the horse uh, feel, get back to itself and start eating again. There are some antiviral medications such as valcyclovir or Valtrex, it's a human drug, excuse me, and gancyclovir, which could help reduce the level of viremia and might shorten the shedding period as well as shorten the, the disease manifestations. <coughs> I, excuse me. Um, but I, I, there, there is a, a debate about how useful those antiviral medications are. So I think you need to look real long and hard and really consult with your veterinarian about whether or not you want to do that. Finally, in the horses that get the neurological form of the disease, because it damages the blood vessels by uh, upsetting those lining cells, the endothelial cells on the inside of the uh, blood vessels, it can cause stroke-like signs. So use of anticoagulants like heparin uh, are something that are getting looked at long and hard right now. So um, I, ha I have a follow-up question on the uh, neurologic form. So I know like if a horse has West Nile virus, which is also a neurologic disease, after they recover, sometimes you'll see some behaviors in the horse that are related to that neurologic damage. You know, the horse isn't quite itself again after that disease. Is that the same? Uh, does that also occur with EHV in the, the yeah. neurologic form? It can. And in fact, j just to describe to you, you know, the biggest headache that I ever had to deal with was this 2003 outbreak that occurred there at the University of Finley because they had 100 uh, I believe 144 horses that developed fevers, 46 of them got neurologic disease, and 14 of them got neurologic disease so bad that they became recumbent and actually either died or had to be put down. So that's, you know, that that's how dramatic it can be okay. um, in that situation. You, you know, but I, uh, in, in going down that path, I think I lost part of your follow-up question. So do you mind? Yeah, so what, what are some of the uh, reoccurring issues that a horse might have after it's recovered from the neurologic form? Yeah, sorry. That, that, I, that, that reminds me of what I was going to say, because in that group of horses that had uh, those 46 that had neurologic disease, uh, Dr. Henninger, who was the attending veterinarian there, at that division, um, did a follow-up um, about six months afterwards, and uh, almost a third of the horses still had some residual neurologic gait deficits that he suspected were related to this particular virus. Now, interestingly, one of those horses had ribbons hanging on the front of the stall, and so it had, it had competed the weekend before and done all right. Uh, but residual neurologic signs can occur, and they may persist for weeks to months. 
after they had the neurologic signs. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that if you're if you're on a breeding farm and, and a horse has EHV, uh, that that needs to be addressed immediately because of the other horses on, on the farm. So in those cases, what can be done to help protect those other broodmares and, and help prevent abortion? Well, so that well, if it's an abortion or a neurologic form, whenever you get one of those, um, or even if it's just a respiratory form and you know that they have, you know, a high level of viremia, and isolate. So get those horses away from the remainder of the group. If it's an abortion, you need to dispose of the fetus because in this infection, the fetus becomes infected and that's why it dies in utero and that's what causes them to go in and abort. You can sometimes, actually, we think of this as a late-term uh, abortion, but uh, the virus could uh, actually cause an abortion at an earlier time. It's just if early in gestation, you might get a resorption and never know. Uh, so the, the key things are isolation of the animal that's affected, clean up all of the materials that are around there, so get rid of all of those uh, uh, tissues associated with that abortion, dispose of them, clear that area, and keep other horses away from that area uh, for a short period of time. Again, because the virus lives inside of uh, cells and doesn't live outside, it's not going to stay in the environment a long time, but you would certainly not want to have other horses moving right in there and getting on top of that. So uh, that's why you'd It'd be really problematic if it happens, say, in your folding barn, because then you're going to have to look for a, another area to for the remainder of your mares to fold. We have a follow-up question from our live audience. It's from Renee, and she wants to know about being at horse shows and having outbreaks. So she shows quite a bit and hears about outbreaks occurring at horse shows or having a horse test positive for free HV1. Uh, what should she do if she's at a show and that occurs? So so to, there are several things. If you're at a show, one thing that, that we should always remember is that because this virus is present as latent infection, you might have 2 to 3% of horses that would be shedding virus at any time. So that could be normal. So if you went through and tested, you know, all the horses at a horse show and you found about 2% had some virus at their nose, uh, that would not be a surprise. If there was no evidence of fevers or any other neurologic signs or disease, you know, that might just be normal. If you're at a show and you've done all you can to protect your horse, and that means you've kept it well vaccinated, um, you know, with any of the available vaccines, either killed or modified live, and, and you've used those, then you've done the first part of it. The rest of it is good hygiene and, and health. And then if, in fact, you know that there are horses that are showing neurologic signs, um, hopefully they're going to get segregated away from your horse. And even if your horse gets exposed, like the recent episode that occurred at the fairgrounds in New Orleans, there was a horse that developed neurologic disease and actually got so severely affected that they lost that horse. A horse in the stall beside it also 
became infected, was also positive for viremia, but it in a few days came right back to normal and was doing just fine. Both of those horses need to be segregated because they are risks for the other horses in the environment. So having a place to keep those animals segregated away is going to be critical. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, and we have a question from our live audience. It's from Alyssa, and she wants to know what the latest vaccination protocol is for EHV. She said that she's read that mature non-breeding horses with prior vaccination probably have a decent immunity because it's fairly endemic in the environment. Is this true? Yeah, that, that's true. I think that's a, a good a good thought. If you're uh, uh, somebody who's you know, um, uh, running a breeding farm, then you're going to vaccinate on a regular basis, you know, third, fifth, seventh uh, month of gestation, you're going to be, uh, you know, boostering and, uh, you know, with either a killed product. Some people uh, use the modified live in, in their breeding operations as a discrep uh, a uh, uh, an opinion of the attending veterinarian as to which vaccine they like. Um, but in response to the, the animal, that's not traveling a lot, not showing a lot, that's been vaccinated, you might get away with twice a year vaccine on that horse. Uh, or if it's in a really closed herd, um, since it is a latent virus that could recrudesce for who knows what reason, you probably still want to, you know, do something to protect them. But the reality is there's not a need for excessive frequent vaccination in any horses. So if you're showing, um, though, it is required now, isn't it, by um, yes. some of the show organizations? So who is requiring it? Because um, I know I show USDF, and, and I'm required to, to present every six months that my horse has been vaccinated. And, and I think that that's probably a reasonable thing to show there. If I was showing, I probably would maybe vaccinate uh, at most. Uh, three times a year, so every four months. But but uh, again, in the mature horses, twice a year, they should have pretty good antibody. Now, one thing that we do know is that older horses appear to lose part of their immune system. There are two types, two sides to the immune system, the antibody side and the cellular side. In older horses, cell-mediated immunity seems to wane down. And Dr. Allen did some research uh, in his career in which he showed that the neurologic form of herpes was more prevalent, uh, at least easier to reproduce uh, in experimental cases in old animals. But as we all know, the horses that are at shows are not old horses. They're the ones in the prime of their career. And so in that case, it's associated with lack of antibody response, maybe some immune suppression associated with transport and other, you know, just the stress of being on that show circuit, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the level of virus that they get exposed to and whether or not that virus, uh, you know, is uh, the mutated form or not. And kind of Alyssa, went in a, around there. Go ahead. And, and Alyssa has another follow-up question. She wants to know if the modified live vaccine is more effective than the killed vaccine. Um, there, there's been a, quite a bit of research trying to show 
which vaccine is most effective. And uh, recently there was some good data showing that uh, several of the killed products as well as the uh, modified live, uh, in fact, have been, been quite uh, efficacious. So I can't say that I think it is more effective. I can tell you that I know a lot of people are doing research to try to see in the face of an outbreak, is there something that could be done that might make an immediate difference? And some people had thought that the modified live might be, that might be a place for it, but um, we're still looking to get good data on that. And we have a question from Kathleen in our live audience, and she wants to know if there's a difference in effectiveness between the vaccines given uh, by a shot or intranasally. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that, that uh, the intranasal vaccines are going to do is they're going to stimulate a more local response, so some interferon, so that might block virus from entering right there. So uh, in answer to the question, yes, there will be a difference in what happens following the vaccination, uh, you know, depending on whether you do it intranasal or uh, uh, parenterally. Having said that, there's a lot of evidence that both are quite effective. And we have another question from um, from our live audience. This is from Sandy. And Sandy says that she'll be moving four horses from New Mexico to Washington this year. She wants to know if she should vaccinate her horses since she'll be staying at horse motels and county fairgrounds overnight along her trip. Well, I think if you've got your horses well vaccinated before you leave and you're going to be doing it as it sounds like she is planning in a very reasonable way so you're not going to overstress the animals with, uh, you know, with how long they're going to be on the van, what you're going to do with them uh, throughout that time. They should be vaccinated before they leave, probably a couple of weeks ahead. You don't want to be doing it a day or two right before they leave because uh, that might cause a problem. So get them vaccinated ahead. And then uh, I, I don't think you need to do any boosters along the way or anything. We have another question from our live audience. Jen says that Dr. Reed has mentioned that older horses with decreased immunity might be more susceptible to the virus. What about young horses, foals and yearlings? Would they be more susceptible as well? Well, certainly in the very, very young ones that are still on their moms, they're going to get really good passive immunity out of the colostrum and or uh, other uh, uh, passive immunity that they might give if, say, you gave uh, plasma or something. So they're, the real world young ones are going to get protected there. Uh, as far as the respiratory form, a lot of times when the passive immunity is waning off and they haven't yet made uh, their own, you know, their own immune system is just becoming more and more mature. At that point in time, some of those foals might be at risk of getting the respiratory form. Uh, and, you know, so that would be my biggest concern there. Otherwise, young, healthy animals that are on a regular vaccination program, you know, once or twice, or excuse me, twice a year probably is enough. They're going to be, you know, doing just fine with the antibody they have. Those animals that are in a breeding program, then you're going to follow the recommendations on the vaccines that are being used. 
And Sandy in our live audience says thank you for the information one for her moving her horses. Um, we have a question from Cindy in New Hampshire and she wants to know how effective is the vaccine and will it protect against the neurologic form of EHV? Uh, there, unfortunately, none of the vaccines, uh, despite a lot of effort in, in research, have yet been shown to be fully be protective against the neurologic form. There are some uh, of both the killed and the modified live that where there's a, uh, some evidence that you might get some added protection there. But right now, we do not have any vaccine that is labeled to you know guarantee protection against that. There's lots and lots of research going on for development of new vaccines and testing uh, to evaluate how efficacious it is against the neurologic form of this disease. So Hopefully, nothing, nothing, nothing yet. Yeah, and and not right on the horizon yet. Well, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I like the way you asked that question. Nothing on the horizon because. <laughs> Uh, a few years ago at the AAP, that was the topic of a of a big panel on this, and uh, there's debate on both sides. Some of the vaccine people think we're on the way and are much closer, whilst others, uh, some of the epidemiologists who are looking at risk factors, aren't as convinced. But yes, to, to go back to what you said, right yet now we do not have it, and how close to the horizon we are, I don't know. We have a question from Allison uh, on Prince Edward Island in Canada, and she said she had her colt vaccinated against EHV last fall, but that someone has mentioned that he should have gotten a booster. Is it too late for that booster, and does she need to start her her series over again? Yeah, if if if, um, if that was the first time being vaccinated, then it's too late for that booster. Uh, I guess. You know, one of the things that you might do, you know, uh, in that particular environment, if he doesn't have a, a large risk, there are a couple of things you could do. You could go ahead and start the series over, or you could measure the antibody levels in the horse and see whether or not he's already showing a, a really good uh, response. The, the big question and the challenge, of course, is you want to know what's going to happen in the amnistic response, meaning what's going to happen when the horse sees the virus in nature? Is it going to mount a really good immune response at that time? You know, even if it has a good high titer, you, there's no guarantee. So uh, I always think whatever vaccine you're using, follow the directions that the manufacturer recommends. So I guess sadly, I'd be telling her she probably has to start over. Okay. Um, Marcus is in the United Kingdom, and he wants to know if you would recommend vaccinating single horses, or is it better to vaccinate every horse in the yard against the disease? Well, I think vaccination of all the horses makes the most sense. Uh, if you have a single horse that's going to travel in and out of the yard for racing, showing, breeding, while the others stay at home, then the horse that travels might seem to be the one that's at greatest risk because it's going to be exposed to a lot of other animals. Uh, however, you got to remember that horse is going to come back to the environment. And if it has been exposed, uh, even if it's well vaccinated, it might bring that uh, organism back with it should it get exposed while it's uh, uh, away from there. So my thought is if I'm going to vaccinate, I'd vaccinate them all. And 
our next question is from Rose in New York, and we got a lot of questions along this line of, do horses in a closed herd need to be vaccinated? So can you explain a little bit what you would identify as a closed herd and then whether or not those horses would need to be vaccinated for EHV? Right, so, so a closed herd means that uh, this is a group of horses that live together, they've been together for some time. There are no horses in or out of that premise. So they're not bringing new horses in and they're not taking those horses out for competitions or breeding or anything. So it's a pretty confined group of animals to me would be a closed herd. Now, remembering that uh, many horses are exposed early in life and that this is a latent infection, we have actually had a neurologic uh, disease in a three horse farm here recently where no horses went in or out. There were fields all around them that had no horses in them. So there was no exposure. And so the only thing we could, uh, you know, or determine from that was that it was a latent, a recrudescence of a latent infection in one of those horses. So in, in response to that question, I would say those animals need less vaccination, less rigorous vaccination than others. Um, but I probably would still recommend as one of my basic vaccines to include uh, equine herpes virus. Uh, Diane is in Utah, and she wants to know if the vaccine for EHV for the respiratory form could possibly put a horse more at risk for the neurologic disease. Um, the, the, there's some anecdotal evidence out there that um, would support the notion that frequent vaccination might in fact make an animal at somewhat higher risk for developing the neurologic form of the disease. I don't know that we can find good scientific evidence to back that up, but I do know of situations where animals in some environments are vaccinated every 60 days you know, like in, in big school herds where there's a lot of teaching going on and there are lots of horses in there. And in those scenarios, we have seen outbreaks of equine herpes myeloencephalopathy. So I didn't really answer her question uh, because I don't think the scientific evidence is there, but I, in fact, do think that you don't want to over-vaccinate. There's not a need for that. Did I address? I, I don't know if I answered her question. She may have to give me a follow-up. <laughs> I think I think you did. Um, we have a question from Jen in California, and Jen wants to know if there are any updates on biosecurity measure for events and public places. And before you respond to this, we were chatting before the broadcast uh, about this question, and we did find a resource that um, we've seen at uh, different presentations that is from the state of California, and we posted that in the chat. So if you're uh, joining us uh, via the internet, you can look at that link and go ahead and click on that. But uh, Dr. Reed, I'll go ahead and put the question over to you though. Uh, are there any updates on uh, biosecurity measures for events and public spaces with our horses? Biosecurity is just one of the, it's, it's a real buzzword right now. and. I think that you already addressed uh, what I believe is an outstanding resource. Uh, Dr. Uh, 
uh, Katie Flynn and uh, Dr. Fowler and uh, other members of the uh, California Department of Food and Agriculture have done a really, really good job in uh, paying attentive and, and tuning into biosecurity. Another individual, uh, Dr. Josie Traub-Dargetts at Colorado State University, she worked a lot both with this group and other groups in, uh, you know, developing both uh, presentations, some of which can be available for horse groups. The AAEP also has uh, available for veterinarians and I think for lay people as well, uh, slideshows that can be used to talk about biosecurity. Uh, because certainly the the notion of having a biosecurity, it needs to begin with a plan. So when you go into starting an event, you need to think about what if something happens and have, uh, you know, something ready. So uh, you need to think about where are we going to take if an animal gets sick, where are we going to segregate it? Do we have a quarantine area? What are we going to do about the other animals that have been immediately exposed? What about all of the rest of the animals? Uh, you know, do we need to know in advance whether or not they've been vaccinated prior to coming into our premises? So there are many, many things that are really critical and probably too long for this discussion tonight, but I would really encourage people to go and look at those resources that are available, uh, whether they get them from the state of California, from the American Association of Equine Practitioners, uh, and probably the horse magazine would be a, a, a really good place to, uh, you know, to, to have, uh, like you surely must have evidence or things in your, uh, in your magazine that show people where some of these resources are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for the plug. <laughs> and we do have um, some resources that we've put together uh, from, we call it our, our editor's picks. And if people want to access that, they can go to thehorse.com slash 38939. And we've also put that in the chat window if you want to click on it. Uh, those are our top 10 editor's resources on EHV. But I think one of the interesting things that I've heard um, Dr. Trabdark gets talk about uh, are the bit checks at horse shows that I hadn't really thought of before with people with their hands in your horse's mouth and having you drop the bit or dropping the bit to check to make sure it's a legal bit and then putting it back in their mouth and how important it is uh, for the technical delegate to have fresh gloves on with each of those checks. Are, is that something that you've come across uh, where there are little holes in biosecurity? Uh, at really, shows. really a good point. You you uh, you did a, a good job of reminding me of the importance of that. Of not only the bit checks, but also if you've got uh, veterinarians that are working on animals, sometimes we put uh, lead shanks with a lip chain. Maybe we've gone from a twitch when we've occasionally had to use that, and you you need to think about or scoping. If you're doing upper airway scoping at the sales. That's one of the biggest things that everybody looks for is you're going to go around to a lot of these yearlings at sales and, and they're going to want to look at the upper airway. And so scope after scope and how do you disinfect between uh, patients, changing gloves, all of those things are absolutely critical. Uh, the, those That's just, uh, I'm sorry I didn't mention it. I'm glad you did. <laughs> it's, just, it's one of those things that when they said it, I was like, aha, yeah. <laughs> And then as um, as a volunteer, you know, they give you a box of gloves and say, make sure 
you put on one of these gloves and check the bit and then change your glove and and that I think as the horse's owner you need to be an advocate for that too and make sure that you're watching that that glove does get changed because people get to chatting and and things happen so that's that's one tip that has stood out from for me going to some of these different lectures and um, we have a question a follow-up question from sandy in our live audience about vaccinating she said what what is the protocol for vaccinating a horse if you don't know the horse's previous vaccination history against EHV? Uh, and how long, this, she has a second question, how long has a vaccine been available? Well, the vaccines have been available for quite some time. They've been, there are quite a number of products have been around, uh, you know, for a majority of my career, and I've been doing this for 40 years. Um, so vaccines have been around for, for some time. I don't know. I can't answer to, uh, directly as to how long. I, I can say that for an animal that is a mature animal that you really have no idea about its vaccination status, particularly, uh, you know, let's say you rescued a horse from some uh, venue. You know, in those situations, I think I would start as if it had never been vaccinated. So I would give the initial vaccine follow in two to three weeks with a booster. And if the rec manufacturer recommends a, a second booster, I would do that. So you might uh, give three shots, you know, in the initial time period to, to get a good antibody response. Most likely that's not going to be a totally necessary because even though those horses uh, might not have been in the best managed situations, they're likely to have been exposed to the virus and they're going to have be able to make a good immune response when they see the vaccine. But if you don't know and you want to be safe, start as if they've never been vaccinated and follow the recommendation of your veterinarian and the manufacturer. And Sandy is saying that her horse is an off-the-track thoroughbred. Is it more likely that that horse has a, a history of EHV vaccination? Absolutely. It, it very likely has a good vaccination history. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, you know, everybody in the horse industry is looking for are, you know, maybe we ought to do a better job with the passports. I know that USCF and FEI and those uh, high horse, high performance animals, they're trying to work really hard to get those passports to be accurate and show all the vaccinations, times and dates and keep that with the horse so that you know. Uh, similar things have been asked, and uh, I remember 20 years ago in Ohio, we tried to encourage development of a passport for all the racehorses, and we met with a, a fair bit of resistance, but it would be so critical to be able to know, you know, what the vaccine history has been on that animal. Having said that, coming off a racetrack, it's going to have been vaccinated uh, because of the regulations there. Okay. We have a question from Sarah in our live audience, and she says she travels with her horses often for both shows and trail rides. She wants to know how she can find out about locations of EHV outbreaks or confirmed cases in a particular area. And I'll give this to Dr. Reed, and then I have an idea, too. Okay. Well, one of the things that I think is happening right now, the American Association of Equine Practitioners has put together a website and it's headed up by Dr. Nat White. Dr. White is uh, a boarded surgeon, a former president of the AAEP, and a faculty member uh, from, uh, well, he was at Georgia and then Virginia, Maryland uh, Veterinary College. 
Dr. White is maintaining now uh, a, a, a website that people can go to and look at where outbreaks have been throughout the country. And so that is a, an outstanding resource. Uh, and I would commend the AAP and particularly Dr. White, who's been a really strong advocate to push forward uh, for this program. He's gotten a lot of help in its development from individuals like Dr. Traub Dargitz and Dr. Flynn and others, and I'm probably goofed up there by naming even a few, as well as several of the manufacturing companies that are uh, doing surveillance on their own, bio uh, security surveillance either through them or uh, some of the diagnostic labs like IDEX and University of California Davis, I believe. Okay. I don't know, and do you have some other suggestions? Um, well, we did just post the link to the Equine Disease uh, Communication Center uh, in the chat. If if you're joining us on the inter internet, you can click on that to see that. And then also uh, at the horse, we follow outbreaks really closely uh, as well. And we uh, do a newsletter every Tuesday has all that kind of hot news that's happening in the horse industry. And so if you're looking for a place where it's aggregated, uh, sign up for that newsletter uh, and, and look for, for the information about the, the outbreaks as well as updates on the status of those. Um, so we have a question from Carrie in California and she wants to know how effective is it to spray your stalls with disinfectant before you unload at a horse show? I think that's a good idea. You know, uh, as I said a little while ago, that you know, once the virus is outside of the body, it's not going to live very long. So it's somewhat, I suppose, a wimpy virus. And uh, so if you use, you know, if, you, if the stalls have been cleaned, then disinfecting with something as simple as bleach, you know, uh, spraying it down might be effective to eliminate it. The, the big key is I am always hesitant to put my horse in an environment where it's damp and, uh, and dark because I think bacteria and viruses might be able to hang out in those kind of warm, damp, dark environments. And so I, I like to have uh, stalls that are clean and dry uh, prior to doing it. So I don't know, she asked a specific question, how effective is it to spray the stalls in? And in reality, you know, if, if it's only for a matter of minutes, it's probably not going to make a big difference. you got to hope that the management has done a good job in preparing that venue before you arrive. And uh, I have another tip from my own life, Dr. Reed, <laughs> if, okay. if I can share it. So, uh, I get exposed to a lot of horse diseases uh, in my job at, at the horse, not actually exposed to them myself, but I hear about all of the outbreaks and it makes me very paranoid. And one of the things that I do when I go to shows with my horse is I take my own hose because oftentimes the show facility will have one hose and people go down the stall, the shed row filling buckets. I take my own hose, I unhook the hose that's there and I use my own and then I hide it and I don't share it with anyone. <laughs> so. So that, that's a really good uh, recommendation, and in fact, we encourage that even in our hospital. It's it's it, you know it's so much easier to drag the hose, but carrying buckets is a really really helpful thing to prevent spread of respiratory uh, viruses from horse to horse. So going down, fill the bucket, carry it back and forth 
a lot more labor intensive. Uh, but yours is probably a smarter thing, a hidden hose. <laughs> I do not share it. I'm very selfish with my hose. So, um, right. uh, we have a question from Tom in Missouri, and Tom rides trail horses, and he wants to know. And we actually got quite a few questions about trail horses and whether or not they needed to be vaccinated. What is the disease risk to trail horses? Well, the risk is dependent on the exposure of the horses uh, to other animals that are febrile, and so. If you've got, you know, I assume if they're on trail rides and they're actually out for several days and they're camping at night, the horses are likely to be kept in pretty close confinement and they're going to be uh, close to each other. So you'd like to think that all of those horses started out healthy uh, and none of them were, you know, sitting there incubating a virus at the uh, start because that's probably going to be the biggest risk is one animal that's uh, got subclinical disease at the start of the ride that then gets in the middle of all the other horses. So just to simply answer it, I'd say the risk is less problematic in that group, but not totally uh, eliminated. Um we have a question from Laura in Minnesota, and this was another question that we got quite a few of the same question during registration. She wants to know, what's the best way to protect your horse if you're at a boarding facility and you don't have control over horses coming and going and uh, biosecurity at the farm? I think in those situations, you can only control what you do have control over, and that's your own horse. So you can be aware of, of uh, your own horse's health, uh, keeping a good eye, uh, eye on how it looks, how it acts, whether or not it's carrying a fever or showing any other signs of disease. Keep your feed buckets and your grooming tools and everything uh, clean. And uh, again, don't share them. Uh, and make sure that you have access to uh, good, clean water. And then uh, finally, keep your horse uh, you know, well vaccinated, which means probably two to three times a year, you're going to protect against all of the big diseases, uh, flu, rhino, uh, tetanus, rabies, you know, things that are going to be really, really, uh, you know, critical. And even though rabies is very rare, certainly has a potential to be fatal, uh, as do some of the other encephalitides as well. And I don't want to get too far on a tangent because I know we're nearing the end and I want to make sure we address all of the questions we can. Uh, and for everyone who's listening, we had a couple questions come in asking about signing up for the newsletters. Uh, we have posted that in the chat. And if you're listening and, and not on the internet, you can go to thehorse.com slash newsletters and sign up for that Tuesday Horse Health newsletter. Uh, we have a bunch of other newsletters too, um, lameness, uh, welfare, and all sorts of things uh, for for people who are interested. Um, we have a question from Rebecca in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know if manure that's spread on pastures could spread the disease. Is that a concern? Not a big concern at all because the manure is not a risk since the virus lives in cells and spread by respiratory secretions. And what is a, a, the likely distance for horses that are going to spread by respiratory? We usually use 40 feet as you know an area in which you might aerosolize and spread a virus from horse to horse so as far as worrying about the manure on pasture even if there was a lot of mucus or other materials that were in the muck droppings that were in that stall 
and they got picked up and then got spread out uh, with the manure spreader, again, you would have very, very, in my opinion, minimal risk spreading a respiratory virus in that way. I do think being cognizant of the role that a fomite might play, and probably the biggest worry are us. You know, people that have their, uh, maybe their nose, their hair is right under the nose of their horse, and they may or may not be shedding a virus, and then you go over to your to another neighboring horse, and you're in very, very close contact. You might carry things around uh, in an easy way. So I'm on a little bit of a tangent, but to be sure that I've answered it, I would not be worried about manure. I wouldn't be worried about other ways that it, you might carry something from a sick horse to a neighboring horse. Okay. Well, uh, we are out of time, Dr. Reed. <laughs> it's been an I, hour. I, uh, <laughs> it, it well, it was by. really good. I enjoyed being here. I, I don't know, I, I, you know, when I sit here and think about it, I'm like, gosh, I don't know if I answered every question into the best of my it was to the best I could do at that time, but I, you're, you're sitting here and you think, oh, I should have said this or I should have said that. So I, I think I thank you for asking me and including me, and I hope uh, your uh, audience thought it was uh, somewhat worthwhile, uh, but I can already think of, gosh, there's more we can say. <laughs> Is there one one takeaway that, that you would like everyone to have from tonight's discussion? I, I, I think that... Um, that, that probably the really, really biggest takeaway in, is, is being aware that this virus is very prevalent and that uh, that comment I made about two to three percent of horses might be shedding the virus at any time. And so if you are, get involved in an outbreak, one of the biggest things that everybody worries about is how do you end the quarantine? How do you end, you know, and, and make certain that it's now safe? Because we've had a, a huge uh, problem with, you know, this most recent scenario at the fairgrounds in New Orleans in getting horses into the state of Kentucky. But everybody, our state veterinarian and everybody who owns horses in the state has a responsibility to protect the population of animals. So, being tuned into knowing your own horse and being cognizant of what the risks are, and then staying tuned in through these websites like from the horse or from the AAP to look at these disease areas, that's really important stuff to, to take away, I think. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm going to try later in the year to get you back to talk with us about EPM if, if you're willing join us again. Um, I, I love it. <laughs> I know it's one of your favorite topics. Um, I want to thank everyone who submitted questions for our live event and who joined us to listen live. I, I hope you join us next month when we talk about equine metabolic syndrome. Until oh, then, another, another big, big topic. Um, big topic. Of, yeah. Uh, until then, from all of us at The Horse, uh, I hope you have a great evening.